You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the final episode in our series on Teddy Roosevelt and the River of Doubt. A couple of notes to kick things off. First, a reminder that you can look at a map and photos of this expedition on our website, explorerspodcast.com. And second, last time I said that Theodore Roosevelt was 54 years old when he was actually 55. Not a big deal, but I just thought I'd mention that. That is it for notes. Let's get going. The Roosevelt Rondon scientific expedition had found themselves stranded in the Brazilian highlands, blocked by a large canyon that the boats could not go down, and high imposing rocks that the heavy dugout canoes could not be carried over. Walking appeared to be their only option. However, that was not feasible for Theodore Roosevelt, who was suffering from malaria and an infected leg. Roosevelt was in such bad shape, he had suggested to his son that the expedition just leave him, but Kermit Roosevelt would have none of that. He had promised his mother that he would look after his dad, and letting him die in the Amazon jungles was not what he had in mind. The challenge in front of Kermit was trying to figure out a way to get the boats to the bottom of the rapids. If he could do that, it would allow his father a way to continue down the river without doing too much walking. Now, let's remember, Kermit was an engineer and had built bridges and railroads in Brazil, so figuring out this kind of thing was right up his alley. So what Kermit did was to study the gorge, which was about a mile long and had six waterfalls, including one that was 30 feet, or 9 meters, high. Moving past the river, you had to go high up on the rock formations, which were smooth and slippery. The drop from the rock ledge to the fast channel of water below was often straight and deep. Anyhow, what Kermit did was plot out a route down the river, the idea to lead the boats along the way. At times, the boats could be left in the water, connected to ropes, and carefully led through the gorge. But when the water got too rough or there were waterfalls, the boats would have to be lifted out of the river and carried forward and then lowered back into the water when things weren't so wild. Now, even in mild rapids, this was dangerous, but the proposed portage was really deadly because of the height and formation of the rocks that they had to traverse. At times, they would need to be standing on ledges that barely existed, where one slip or one yank from a boat on the river could hurl man into the raging water below. If a boat got loose on the river in this channel, it would almost assuredly get destroyed, and if a person fell into those same waters at a bad spot, there was a good chance they would die. The plan that Kermit laid out was feasible, but very dangerous. The younger Roosevelt now had to convince the rest of the team it was worth trying. The first person that Kermit had to sway was Lieutenant Joao Lyra, Rondon's second-in-command. Lyra and Kermit had become good friends on the journey. The lieutenant weighed the risks and saw the merits. Plus, he trusted Kermit's judgment. The two men took the plan next to Rondon, who was skeptical but open to the idea. One big problem was that Rondon, from atop the canyon's cliffs, could see into the distance. The river was not a steady, gradual decline. Instead, there were more hills, with ups and downs as far as he could see. That meant more rapids and waterfalls. Was it worth it to haul the big dugout canoes past the rapids, only to have to deal with the same challenge over and over again? Well, the answer was yes. If the men took to walking, their chances were not good. 
They couldn't carry much food, and the hunting and fishing had been bad, and Theodore Roosevelt was as good as dead if he had to walk. Hauling the canoes down the gorge was the best of the team's bad options. And thus the decision was made and the operation began. As trying to carry all the provisions over the canyon heights was deemed too difficult, the team carved out a trail through the dense jungles about 350 feet, or 105 meters, away from the river and up and over a steep ridge. Everyone was ordered to get rid of anything but food and essentials. Teddy Roosevelt kept two bags, nothing more. He had his cartridge bag for his ammunition, and then he had a duffel bag with a blanket, mosquito netting, an extra pair of underwear and socks, some handkerchiefs, a wash kit, some medical supplies, needle and thread, and spare eyeglasses. He gave his extra pair of boots to Kermit as his son's footwear was disintegrating. One of the big sacrifices, according to Roosevelt, was that many books were left behind. Roosevelt was a voracious reader, even here in the jungle. The portage downriver would take four days, but when they finally arrived at the bottom of the rapids, it was a success, except for one boat that was lost when it slipped from its rope and smashed to pieces on the rocks. No one had been seriously hurt or killed. The men were absolutely exhausted from the ordeal. As for Teddy Roosevelt, he laid down most of the time, his fever raging. He was led over the hills on foot in short spurts, but he made it. He refused to be carried. The expedition would finally take back to the river, some men walking along the shore, while the others, including Roosevelt, rode in the canoes. But they would only make it two miles before they came to some more rapids, and then another canyon. The men were disheartened. George Cherry would write, quote, Instead of getting us out of the hills at once, as we had hoped to do, we are deeper in among them. End quote. The expedition was falling apart. They had been fighting rapids nonstop for a month, and had hundreds of miles to go. Food was low. The men were physically and mentally exhausted, and it was estimated that they had only descended about 500 feet from the highlands. They had at least that much, probably more, to go. This meant the rapids were far from over. The men openly questioned if they were ever going to see their homes again. Still, there was nothing left to do but push on. The expedition began yet another portage. In an attempt to run one of the boats through the canyon, a dugout was busted apart in the river. Instead of risking losing more of the canoes, the team would have to build another road along the river and haul them along the wooden poles they laid across the trail. It would be another long and back-breaking project. So, to do this, the expedition essentially set up a camp at the top of the rapids and another at the bottom, with a temporary resting spot in the middle of it all. One man, a camarada named Pedrino, was left at the camp at the top of the rapids to guard everything. It was there that he caught another of the camaradas, Julio de Lima, stealing food. We've mentioned Julio before, and it was not the first time he'd been caught stealing. When one of the camarada leaders, Paishan, found out, he was enraged. What exactly Paishan said, or did to Julio, is not known, but the latter was ultimately ordered back into the line of baggage carriers and told to keep working. Now, at the temporary camp, Roosevelt and several other men were resting. It was here that Julio would come into the camp, walk over to some rifles stacked together, take one, and march off. Now, this was not uncommon. While walking through the jungle, game might be spotted, and thus a person would go get a rifle and see if they could add some meat to the day's menu. A short while later, there was a crack of a rifle being fired. In the camp, the men began to wonder what Julio had shot. But then another camarada rushed into the camp saying that Julio had shot and killed Paishan. The men grabbed their rifles and prepared for the worst. Had Julio snapped? Would he show up any second, shooting at anyone who he came across? They waited, but nothing happened. It was then that they came to the conclusion that Julio was likely heading back to the camp above the rapids to kill Petrino. Teddy Roosevelt, still in terrible shape, worked himself up into a fury at the idea. Despite his fever, infected leg, and exhaustion, he grabbed a rifle and limped toward the camp. It didn't take long for Roosevelt and Dr. Kajazira to find the body of Paishan, 
He had been shot in the heart. Roosevelt seethed at the killing, and he and the others continued to the other camp. Thankfully, they would find Padrino alive and unhurt. Julio had not come for the man. He was simply gone, and no one knew where. Candido Rondon was crushed by the murder. Paijan had been a loyal man and a leader amongst the camaradas. Rondon had lost many men in this job, but never by one taking the life of another. He was outraged. A search was made of the surrounding area, and while they did not find Julio, they found the rifle he had used to kill Paijan. The belief is that after shooting Paijan, Julio had panicked and thrown the rifle aside and fled into the jungle. This was a great relief, as the men did not have to worry about Julio bursting out of the jungle firing his rifle. Roosevelt insisted that Julio had to be tracked, arrested, and killed. Rondon said that wasn't how things worked in his country. It was the laws of Brazil, not the law of the wild. The death of Paijan was hard on the camaradas. They had respected the man, and now they had to bury him. As they had abandoned all their shovels, the men dug with knives and axes and hands to make a grave. Rondon would have him buried with his head toward the mountains and his feet toward the river. A volley was fired to honor Paijan. Roosevelt would write, quote, We left him forever under the great trees beside the lonely river. End quote. Julio's actions put the men on edge. Thankfully, he had no weapon, but guards would have to be posted at all times in case he did return to steal food or damage the canoes, and heaven forbid if he got hold of a rifle and ammunition. In order to protect all the supplies, for the first time ever, the men would sleep in two camps that night, one at the head of the portage, the others at the rear. Due to the exertion of the day, Roosevelt's condition got worse that night. His heart was racing a mile a minute, and he could barely walk. George Cherry would say, and not for the last time, quote, he can't possibly live until morning, end quote. Dr. Kajazir hovered over Roosevelt, doing all that he could to help the president. On April 4th, in the mid-afternoon, Roosevelt would lose all color, he began to shake uncontrollably, and his fever raged, reaching as high as 103 Fahrenheit, or 41 degrees Celsius. He was delirious. Dr. Kajizira would inject quinine directly into Roosevelt's abdomen to try and speed up his recovery. He would do this every six hours, but nothing changed. That night, the doctor, Cherry, and Kermit sat with Roosevelt in shifts. Much of the time, Roosevelt, delirious with fever, would mumble lines from the poem Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. In a moment of lucidity, Roosevelt would speak with Colonel Rondone and insist that if he fell into a coma, the expedition must leave him. He didn't want to be a burden on everyone else. That morning, as the sun came up, Roosevelt's fever would finally break, falling to 101 degrees. He was still incredibly weak. Later, while a portage was conducted, Roosevelt would limp along for a half mile, or one kilometer, to a new camp further downriver. Again, he refused to be carried, instead helped along by one of the other men. A chair and a cot were brought on the walk so he could rest as needed. Now it was on this day that two other good things happened. First, Kermit Roosevelt and Antonio Parisi, one of the camaradas, would shoot three woolly monkeys plus a big turtle. It meant fresh meat that night. The second item was that Rondone, Lyra, and Kermit scouted down the river, and after this next set of rapids, there were no big hills in the distance. That was great news. However, the men were cautious. They had thought things were going to get better before, but it had led to nothing. Still, the fresh meat and encouraging news buoyed the spirits of everyone. On April 6th, the River of Doubt would do something the men had not experienced in a long time. It widened, and it calmed. There were no rapids, no waterfalls, no whirlpools, just a gentle, winding river. The men were able to enjoy a peaceful descent, at least for the time being. However, the day would bring back an old, but unwanted friend, Julio the Thief. The man appeared on the riverbank, holding onto a tree that overlooked the river. He was in terrible shape. Three days in the jungle alone, with no food, had pushed him to the brink of starvation. He called out to Rondone and begged to be taken back. 
no doubt promising to be an obedient and faithful worker. As he passed, Rondon told Julio, quote, It is not possible for me to stop the canoe now and to interrupt the survey. End quote. The rest of the men ignored Julio's pleas. The camaradas wouldn't even look at the man, most likely wished they had a rifle and could finish him off. And thus, Julio de Lima was stranded in the jungle. Seven miles later, the expedition would come to a large tributary of the River of Doubt, entering the river on eastern or right side. Here they elected to camp for the night. The day had been a success, the expedition traveling 22 miles, or 35 kilometers, the most they had gone on any day of their journey. However, it was here that Colonel Rondone would throw a wrench into the plans. He went to Roosevelt and said that Julio was his man, and he wanted to go back and get the guy and bring him to civilization, where he would be put on trial for his crimes. Roosevelt was furious at the idea. If anything, he said they should go back and execute Julio, not save him. And he pointed out that Rondone's plan was unrealistic. Julio would have to be fed, diminishing their own supplies, as well as guarded constantly. It was foolish to waste resources on the man. He was gone, his deplorable actions sealing his fate. Good riddance. The debate got heated, with Rondon later writing, quote, The clash was tremendous. End quote. Now, the Americans believed that Rondon had ulterior motives for going back and getting Julio, and that was because it gave him and Lieutenant Lyra a chance to survey and determine the latitude of the tributary where they were now camped. No matter, in the end, Rondon argued that Julio was his man and his responsibility, and to this, Roosevelt agreed. The next day, two men were sent back upriver to search for the killer. Rondon and Lyra would do their surveying of the tributary, and some of the other men went out to fish and hunt. Ahead, the scouts indicated more difficult rapids and waterfalls. On the positive side, the men caught a large red-tailed catfish, about three and a half feet long, or one meter. Later that day, the two men sent to find Julio returned, but with no Julio. They had gone to where he'd been seen, called out to him, fired off some shots, that sort of thing. But he was gone. He likely went to try and find the local Cinta Larga people in hopes they would take him in. This was very unlikely. Instead, they probably would have killed him. Otherwise, he likely would have starved to death. One other unspoken option, by the way, would have been that Julio was found and the camaradas sent to fetch him, instead of bringing him back to camp, delivered him some old-school justice, revenge for the killing of the respected comrade. No matter, Julio is gone from the story, never to be heard from again. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The 19 remaining members of the River of Doubt expedition continued down the river on April 8th. 
they would encounter many rapids and only make three miles, or five kilometers, as another portage was needed. Food was running desperately low by this time. George Cherry wrote that his dinner that night consisted of a couple of bites of fish, a soda cracker, and coffee. The sketchy diet was causing other issues, including dysentery. Two of the camaradas were almost as ill as Teddy Roosevelt, and Kermit Roosevelt's malaria was so bad he could barely stand. Roosevelt, by the way, was in bad shape. He had lost nearly 50 pounds. He was gaunt and weak, and his clothing was filthy and in tatters. His skin was burned, he had numerous cuts, and all sorts of insect bites. He and the men would have been quite the sight. Regarding Roosevelt's leg, it was only getting worse. The concern was that the infection would lead to blood poisoning. If that happened, Roosevelt would die. Remember, there were no antibiotics available at this time. Despite not having any anesthesia, Dr. Kajazira wanted to operate on the leg and drain it of the infection, but Roosevelt said no. Surgery in the wild was a dicey business. At this point, the expedition had only covered about 200 miles, or 320 kilometers. The River of Doubt had kept on a northerly course. This meant it would likely take the men to one of two destinations. The first was the Madeira River, 800 miles straight north, or 1,300 kilometers. This would mean they had a long, long way to go. The other main option was the Aripuana River, which was not that far to the east of the River of Doubt. If their course veered in that direction, they were much closer to a known river. Even if this was the case, they still had at least two to 300 miles, or 320 to 480 kilometers, from reaching potential help. Rondon, by the way, had ordered some men to be watching the Aripuana and the Madeira in case the expedition ended up emerging in those areas. To further demonstrate the desperation of the men, it was at this time that some ammunition was stolen from Roosevelt's team. One of the camaradas probably thought it was a carton of food. No matter, the theft demonstrates how desperate everyone was getting. The discipline Rondon and his men had shown was showing signs of cracks. Rondon, by the way, was really the only person who did not get sick or injured on the expedition. The man was a machine, seemingly impervious to disease or illness or fatigue. Each day he rose, shaved, and went about his business. On April 11th, the expedition would stop for a few hours when Kermit Roosevelt's dog was lost on the shore. Rondon sent back some men to find the animal, who Kermit was quite fond of. Some of the men criticized the decision, saying Colonel Rondon was sucking up to the Americans, which was probably true to a degree. However, the delay would yield something very interesting. While the expedition was waiting, one of the camaradas decided to go fishing on the bank opposite where the team was camped. He would come back with some exciting news. He had found a vine that had, without question, been cut off with an axe. This was the telltale sign of rubber tappers. We have talked about the rubber industry in Brazil, and how it had collapsed not long before Roosevelt arrived in South America. Well, that the collapse had occurred had not stopped rubber cultivation in the Amazon forest. The rubber tappers kept working, no doubt hoping for prices to rebound. Rubber tappers, by the way, tended to operate alone or in small groups. A single rubber tapper might have a large area of up to a couple hundred trees that he worked. Now, these trees weren't all clustered together. In the Amazon, a rubber tree tended to thrive away from other rubber trees, so a tapper's trees would be spread out. The typical tapper would spend the morning visiting all of his trees, collecting the latex that oozed out of an incision in the tree and into a container. The tapper would then take the latex back to his hut, where it would take weeks to produce a big rubber ball for sale. This ball would be roughly anywhere from 50 to 150 pounds, or 23 to 70 kilograms. The life of a rubber tapper was often very dangerous. Like prospectors, these people moved deeper and deeper into the wilds of the Amazon basin in search of unclaimed trees. Indians were always a threat, as were rival rubber tappers. And so, with the discovery, the expedition moved on, apprehensive but hopeful. For a few days, the team again dealt with a series of rapids, but they moved forward, albeit slowly. 
and then on the morning of April 15th, something odd was spotted on the left bank of the river. An investigation showed a rough plank with the letters J.A. burned into it. An hour later, the men would spot a house on the shore. Not a native hut, but a house, like a rubber tapper's home. At the sighting of the house, the men let out excited shouts. No one was there, but it was not abandoned. Rondon forbade anyone from taking any items. Onward the canoes would continue, the men anxious at what lay ahead. It would not take long before a canoe, with a single man, was spotted coming up the river of doubt. Upon seeing the canoes coming down the river, the man hurriedly paddled to shore, obviously afraid. But before the man could flee into the jungle, Rondon would shout out a greeting and explain who they were. The man hesitated, and then after some more explanation, got into his canoe and joined the expedition on the river. The man, Ramundo Jose Mark, explained that he had thought the newcomers to be Indians because no one, ever, came down the river. No one. He said that the Indians and the tappers left each other alone, and to antagonize them could be deadly. When asked about food, the man said that he had none to share. He was poor, eking out a life far up on a river few came to. However, he explained that there were others not far down the river, and the expedition would be able to buy food from them. Ramundo gave Rondon a bamboo horn and instructed him to, when he came upon the house of a rubber tapper, to fire three shots with his gun and then blow the horn. This would signal their friendly intentions. The team thanked the man and moved on. It was not long before the expedition came upon another house. This one had smoke billowing out of its chimney and two children were outside playing. As instructed, Rondon fired three shots and blew the bamboo horn. Unfortunately, this scared the woman inside the house, who grabbed her children and fled. The woman would run to some nearby houses and warn everyone that an Indian attack was underway. This was a dangerous moment, as the rubber tappers grabbed their weapons and prepared to defend themselves. It would have been easy for them to just start firing. Luckily, the woman's husband, a man named Anuratu, sensed something was wrong and told everyone to hold their fire. He then saw that they were not Indians. The two sides quickly exchanged greetings, and the danger was passed. Anuratu was part of a small community of rubber tappers. From them, the expedition would learn the exact nature of the River of Doubt. The river flowed north for a while, and then turned east, meeting up with the Aripuana River. It was upwards of 500 miles long, or 800 kilometers. There were still some major rapids to go through on the lower part of the river, which meant few people came up the river, and even fewer lived here. It was just a handful of settlers, mostly rubber tappers, and some Indians. And thus, the nature of the River of Doubt was mostly revealed. It was a western tributary of the Aripuano River. Roosevelt would write of the news, quote, It was astonishing when we were on a river of about the size of the Upper Rhine or Elbe to realize that no geographer had any idea of its existence. End quote. Now, finding out about the River of Doubt was great, but the reaching of the rubber tapper settlement offered this team something far more important. Food. Anuratu invited the men to stay at his house with his family, and the team traded and sold with him and the other tappers for food. For the members of the expedition, it was like a dream. For the first time in months, they were hearing the voices of men, women, and children. They had their first real meal in weeks. They now had hope. George Cherry and Kermit Roosevelt would break out a bottle of scotch they had been saving for a celebration. Still, the men were far from healthy. Dysentery, malaria, fevers, exhaustion, malnutrition. The men were wiped out physically and mentally. Only about half of the camaradas were able to do any sort of hard labor. Only Candido Rondon remained unaffected. Also, Teddy Roosevelt's condition continued to deteriorate, and on April 16th, he allowed Dr. Kajazira to operate on his leg. The doctor had simple surgical tools and no anesthetic. He would slice deep into Roosevelt's leg, draining it of blood and pus. Flies and bugs had to constantly be swatted away as they were drawn to the wound. In typical Roosevelt fashion, he never cried out in pain or complained. He was hard and stoic through it all. 
The operation would be a success and help immensely, but Roosevelt was still in danger. From the settlers, the team would purchase provisions in two more canoes and continue down the river. They would even have a guide for part of the journey. Each day, hope grew for the men, just a bit. Life was less hard. They saw people and experienced kindness. One man and his wife, despite being desperately poor, gave the expedition a duck, a chicken, and some rice. They refused payment. As the team moved on, they encountered other boats, other people. They bought food, received advice, and even had a guide at times. It made things progress much, much faster. On April 20th, the expedition made 52 kilometers, or 32 miles. They even came upon a small river store where they bought things such as sugar and condensed milk. Roosevelt, by the way, continued to struggle. He'd grown lethargic, almost apathetic. Even with the food acquired along the river, he ate little. He had lost 55 pounds, or a quarter of his body weight. Thankfully, he did not shut down entirely. When he ate some eggs, Kermit Roosevelt would breathe a sigh of relief. Now, there were still rapids and portages to be done, but with more food and guidance from the locals, things went much smoother and quicker. The team would eventually come to a long series of rapids, which included six waterfalls. It was as imposing as anything they had faced. Rondon estimated it would take up to two weeks to conduct the portage down the river. The problem was that Teddy Roosevelt would likely not survive another two weeks in these conditions. They would need some help, and help is what they would get. At the top of the rapids lived a man named Jose Caripe, who called himself the king of the rubber gatherers. He said most of the tappers on the river worked for him. This dangerous set of rapids essentially isolated the river from those below. He had thus made a sort of kingdom for himself on this part of the river. Caripe was an industrious man, and he agreed to help the expedition, no doubt for a price. The king of the rubber gatherers would offer to guide the expedition to the foot of the falls. He would take the heavy dugout canoes the team was using and exchange them for one of his own boats, which was much lighter and easier to portage. The expedition, by the way, had by this point acquired three lighter boats. This would give them four boats in total, all much easier to transport downriver than the dugouts. Caripe knew the rapids. He knew where to portage the boats, where they were safe to be on the river, all that sort of stuff. As a result, the portage would take less than two days. It certainly helped that the men were now stronger and more robust, and able to do the hard work in a safer and more confident manner. The only loss on the portage was Kermit Roosevelt's dog, who had wandered off when no one was looking and never returned. Once at the bottom of the rapids, the team would thank Jose Caripe and keep moving down the river. By this time, they had come out of the highlands and the rapids were behind them. Things were looking pretty good. On April 26th, the expedition's boats would pass through some high waters, the result of the heavy rains of the past few months, and it was there that they would be greeted by an amazing sight. It was a row of tents and half a dozen men and two flags. One flag was the green, gold, and blue of Brazil. The second, the red, white, and blue of the United States. Shouts of joy went up from the canoes. Roosevelt, under a makeshift tent in one of the boats, pulled himself up, no doubt the sight of the stars and stripes, giving him a rush of pride, satisfaction, and relief. The expedition was now close to the Aratuana River. A contingent of men, dispatched months ago by Rondon, had been sent up a couple of the unexplored tributaries of the Aripuana. This was one of those squads. The expedition would camp one final night on the River of Doubt. The next morning, Rondon would gather his men, just like he did every morning, and call out the orders of the day. And then he would conduct a ceremony commemorating the team's accomplishments. A sign was posted marking the river as the Rio Roosevelt. There is a famous photo of this moment, and I have posted it on the website. The exploration part of their journey was now over. They had done it. They had put on the map a river that, until now, had not existed. A river that officially clocks in at 472 miles, or 760 kilometers, in length. Maybe it wasn't this epic thousand-mile-long river, 
but it was not insignificant, and to be honest, if it had been a thousand miles long, the chances of the men surviving would have been much, much slimmer. At this point, Candido Rondon and his trusted aide, Lieutenant Lyra, would part with the rest of the expedition. They would stay and conduct survey work, one of those little details that the colonel took so seriously. The rest of the men would have one more canoe ride to a small village about four hours downriver. Except for some minor rapids, the journey was uneventful. The men would reach the village and board a river steamer. The steamer would depart the next day, taking them down the entire length of the lower Aripuana and reach the Madeira River. The next day, it was down the Madeira into the mighty Amazon. From there, it was not far to the city of Manaus, where the Amazon and Negro rivers converge, which they reached on April 30th. In Manaus, the team was rejoined by naturalist Leo Miller. Miller and Captain Amnicar had successfully descended the G. Piranha River. By the way, Anthony Fiala, the expedition's quartermaster, had successfully gone down the length of the Papagayu River, something never done before. He had already returned to the United States. Roosevelt, still weak from his injuries, was carried on a stretcher onto another steamer bound for the east coast of Brazil. Before departing, he called the camaradas together and thanked them for their service. He truly appreciated their dedication and hard work and would give each man two gold coins. The steamer would travel east down the Amazon, Roosevelt staying inside most of the time. He was so weak, he could barely talk above a whisper. By the time they neared the east coast, his strength had returned, a little, and he was able to take short walks on the deck. The steamer would take the men to the port of Bellum, just south of the Amazon's mouth, for an ocean voyage home. There, Rondon caught up with Roosevelt before his departure, allowing for the colonel, Dr. Kajazira, and Lieutenant Lyra to say farewell to their American counterparts. Roosevelt and his companions boarded their ship on May 7th. Their trip home would consist of a stop in Barbados and then on to New York. Roosevelt's health gradually recovered, and he started to eat better and put on weight. He read constantly and showed a renewed interest in world affairs. On May 19, 1914, Theodore Roosevelt and his contingent sailed into New York Harbor on the steamship Aden to the cheers of thousands. Roosevelt had regained about 25 pounds of the weight he had lost, but he still looked thin and haggard and had a limp. And so, the return to New York brings us to the end of the River of Doubt expedition. Here is how we are going to finish up this series. First, we will do a brief rundown on the expedition, talking about successes and failures and key takeaways, that sort of thing. Second, I'll do a wrap-up of the expedition's aftermath, as there was some controversy due to some individuals questioning the details of the journey. Third, I will give a quick rundown on the lives of some of the key members of the expedition. And finally, we'll finish up with a discussion as to the expedition's legacy, plus a few comments from myself. So let's get going. The Roosevelt-Rondon scientific expedition had been a success, despite some setbacks and some conflicts. From a zoological perspective, the expedition had done great. The two naturalists had collected more than 2,500 birds, 500 mammals, plus some reptiles and fish. Some of these were new to science. But the big thing the team had done was to map a major river that had been unknown to most of the world. It's kind of an amazing thing to think that barely 100 years ago, a 500-mile-long river was just not listed on any map. There was just a big blank, and the expedition filled in that blank. And we should stress, this had not been an easy thing to do. The River of Doubt is choked with rapids and waterfalls, and there were the dangers of hostile Indians, plus illness and disease, yet they had done what they had set out to do. A couple of additional geographical successes included the first-ever descent of the G. Piranha and Papagayu rivers. Now, the expedition had not been without controversy or problems. There were conflicts between the two elements, the Americans and the Brazilians, and Rondon, especially early on, refused to admit to Roosevelt that the expedition was overburdened. But to everyone's credit, they had gotten through the difficult parts of the journey. Both Roosevelt and Rondon 
were strong-willed and opinionated men, and while they clashed, they also bent as needed. And I really think it's important to understand that both sides needed each other to get this job done. It's unknown when, or if, Rondon would ever have gotten the financing to conduct the descent of the River of Doubt, and Roosevelt pushed Rondon at times when he needed to be pushed. As for Roosevelt, it's unlikely he could have made the descent without Rondon and his expertise. The cool and deliberate approach toward the native peoples allowed the team to avoid any confrontation with the local tribe, the Sinta Larga, who could easily have wiped out the entire expedition. Now, all of that said, it is easy to be critical of the planning of the expedition. A lot of this falls with Roosevelt. He let people who had little expertise handle so much of the planning, and then Roosevelt switched the itinerary just weeks before departure. That's kind of insane when you think about it. But even with that, certain team members just did not adapt as needed. This left the team with too much stuff, a lot of which they didn't need. And no one seems to have been able to make Roosevelt understand the ramifications of how difficult this expedition was going to be. All of those things almost doomed the party. Still, to their credit, Rondon and Roosevelt adapted as they needed, and they were successful. Final thing here. It would be wrong not to note that, despite all the obstacles that the expedition faced, most of the men came out alive. Julio was simply a bad guy, and the killing of Pison was on him. The big black mark was the death of Simplicio, which falls squarely on the shoulders of Kermit Roosevelt. His recklessness had cost the man his life. But I want to note that it's not as if Kermit was playing catch with live hand grenades or something foolish. He was doing something he thought could save the team a lot of time and hard work. The problem was that this decision offered little margin for error. Well, as we know, something did go wrong, and a man paid with his life. It was tragic, but not criminal. So with that section done, I want to touch on the aftermath of the expedition. I'll start by mentioning that the first news that reached the world about Roosevelt and his team was when Anthony Fiala descended to Papagayu at the end of March. He sent a message back home saying, quote, We have lost everything in the rapids. Telephone my wife of my safety. End quote. Well, Fiala was referring to his own descent of the Papagayu, but when reporters got hold of the message, they went wild. The New York Times headlines said that Roosevelt and his team had lost everything going down the river. It wasn't until the next day that Fiala had followed up and clarified his statement. No matter, people were worried as Roosevelt and his team had been gone for months. And thus, when Roosevelt did come home, people were thrilled. But as I noted, there was some controversy as some people questioned the honesty of Roosevelt's claims. One of those men was Sir Clements Markham. Remember him from the Shackleton series? He had been Robert Falcon Scott's main supporter. Anyhow, Markham was considered an expert on South America, and he expressed doubt that Roosevelt had found a great river like he had proclaimed. Also, another explorer, Henry Savage Landor, which is an awesome name for an explorer, had basically called Roosevelt a charlatan. Landor had spent time in South America, and he said that Roosevelt was stealing all sorts of events and information from his book and claiming them as his own. Well, Teddy Roosevelt was not the kind of man to endure attacks without shooting back, and even though he had not recovered from his ordeal, he arranged a presentation for May 26th at the largest hall in Washington, D.C. This was just a week after returning home. The event was huge, as the hall seated 5,000 people and there was not an empty seat, despite stifling heat and poor ventilation. Roosevelt would take the stage, many of his team at his side. This included George Cherry, Leo Miller, Anthony Fiala, and even Father Zahm. From the start, it was obvious that the former president was not in peak health. He looked tired, his face was covered in perspiration, and his voice was weak. But Roosevelt was on a mission. People had challenged his honesty and integrity. Even an unhealthy Teddy Roosevelt had plenty of righteous indignation in his arsenal. In the end, the people loved Roosevelt. Despite a weak voice, he was impassioned and he was determined to set the record straight. He would emerge vindicated. The New York Evening Journal would say, quote, Any doubts that still linger about the river of doubt hardly are justified. End quote. 
Roosevelt would then move on to Europe to attend Kermit's wedding in Spain, but not before he smacked down his critics at a lecture in London. He was stronger and more forceful as his health had improved, and the great rock on tour that Roosevelt had always been re-emerged and won over all who saw him. No one questioned Roosevelt about his exploits going forward, and he would publish a book on the adventure, Through the Brazilian Wilderness, which you can read for free if you want. I posted a link to it on our website. As a note, in the immediate years after the expedition's return, others would follow Roosevelt's footsteps to the River of Doubt. None came back, no doubt coming in conflict with the Santa Larga people or succumbing to starvation or disease. It wasn't until 1927 when another expedition, led by George Miller Diet, successfully retraced the expedition's route, confirming all that Roosevelt had reported. By the way, in 1992, a modern-day expedition was organized to follow the original enterprise. There were 20 people involved, including Roosevelt's great-grandson, Tweed Roosevelt. So that's it for the aftermath of the expedition. Next, I want to do a rundown of some of the people that we have been traveling with these last few episodes. The first person I'll mention is Anthony Fiala, the well-meaning but ineffective quartermaster of the expedition. While Fiala would serve in the Army during World War I and then dabble in a variety of business enterprises in New York, he would never go exploring again. He died in 1950. The next person is Father John Zom, the Catholic priest who had organized the expedition. Well, Zom had been sent home before reaching the River of Doubt due to a variety of reasons, the main being that he was not fit physically to continue. It had been a stinging rebuke to the man. But Roosevelt had worked to massage the priest's ego, even getting him a spot on stage at Roosevelt's big speech in Washington, D.C. Zom would return to Notre Dame where he was a professor and go on to write some books, drawing on his time in South America. And while I don't have a lot of great things to say about Father Zom in this series, I want to stress that he was a respected scholar and scientist. In his life, he championed Notre Dame becoming a research university dedicated to scholarship as opposed to remaining a smaller boarding school. Zom would die in 1921 at the age of 70. A residence hall at Notre Dame is named after him. The next member of the expedition I'll mention is George Cherry, the naturalist. Cherry continued working, including more trips to South America, but ultimately he retired to his home in Vermont. He wrote his memoir, Dark Trails, Adventures of a Naturalist, in 1930. He died in 1948 at the age of 83. In his life, he collected more than 100,000 birds. The next person I'll talk about is Kermit Roosevelt. The president's son had begun life with so much promise. Courageous and resourceful, he had a lot of his father in him. However, after getting married to Belle Ward, as he had dreamed, and serving in World War I, Kermit would be plagued by personal demons. He was mercurial and brilliant, but prone to bouts of depression. Already a heavy drinker, it got really bad after the death of his father. Kermit would lurch around in his career, but never really find anything that fit his personality. In the 1920s, he took part in expeditions across the Himalayas and into China, but nothing like the River of Doubt expedition. He and Bell would suffer financially in the 1930s, and Kermit's drinking only got worse. At one point, it was so bad, his brother had him admitted to a sanitarium against his will. Kermit and Bell would have four children, but it was a troubled marriage. Kermit's drinking and depression at the root of a lot of that. However, Kermit was a serial cheater and did little to hide his affairs, but Bell would never leave him. In World War II, Kermit joined the British Army in 1939 and was injured fighting in Norway. However, he would later be discharged because his drinking and another bout of malaria interfered with his duties. Bell would appeal directly to Kermit's cousin, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, to get Kermit into the U.S. military. Kermit would get a commission and be sent to Alaska to work as an intelligence officer. However, on June 4, 1943, Kermit Roosevelt's depression would get the better of him, and he would commit suicide. He was just 52. It is a tragic case of an immensely talented man who was overcome by his own inner demons. 
As a note, the towns of Kermit, Texas, and Kermit, West Virginia are named after him. Also, there was a repair ship named after him, the USS Kermit Roosevelt, which saw action in World War II and Korea. So, from Kermit Roosevelt, I want to go to a couple members of the Brazilian contingent. The first person is João Lyra, Rondon's faithful lieutenant. Well, Lyra would, unfortunately, drown three years later while surveying the Sapatuba River. It is said that, after being caught in the river, his last act was to throw his survey notebooks to the riverbank to save the data he had collected. To the end, he was Rondon's disciple. And speaking of Candido Rondon, he is next on my list. Now, I'm going to flat out say that I found Rondon to be the most fascinating person in this series, which is saying a lot. A big reason is that I had never heard of the guy, yet he is a national hero in Brazil, especially to the indigenous peoples. His story is truly amazing. Part European, part Indian, brutally poor, an orphan. He fought and scraped his way up, based on smarts, courage, dedication, and willpower. Few people could match his determination and discipline. Rondon would come home from the River Dot expedition a national hero. Roosevelt would call Rondon one of the greatest living explorers in the world. During the expedition, he was the only person who never got sick or injured. He was a model of hard work and dedication, and he had stood toe-to-toe with one of the most charismatic leaders in the world, Theodore Roosevelt. It really was an incredible story. Now, Rondon's life is, to be honest, way too big to describe in a few sentences, not unlike his counterpart, Teddy Roosevelt, so we'll stick with a few highlights. He would go on to become the chief of the Brazilian Corps of Engineers. In the 1920s, he would lead army forces against a rebellion in the state of Sao Paulo and he would continue surveying much of the Amazon for many years. He and his wife had seven children. In 1955, at the age of 90, Rondon was given the title Marshal of the Brazilian Army. Also, he would be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by the Explorers Club of New York in 1957. He died in Rio de Janeiro in 1958 at the age of 92. Candido Rondon explored and mapped more of the Amazon than any other man in history and made first contact with dozens of Indian tribes. That, right there, is enough to secure him a place in the history books, but he did so much more. He is called the father of Brazilian telecommunications, and May 5th is the National Day of Telecommunications in Brazil, and it was established in his honor. He helped start and serve as the first director of the Indian Protective Services, which was the nation's first organization dedicated to protecting and aiding indigenous people of the nation. The amazing thing about Rondon was his deep desire to help bring the tribes of the Amazon into the modern world in a humane, compassionate, and intelligent manner. I don't think anyone would dispute his decency and honesty. Unfortunately, others weren't as dedicated to these tactics as Rondon. The native peoples were pressed, and still are pressed, by other interests, such as mining and ranching or whatever. And Rondon's attempts to manage these confrontations usually fell by the wayside to business interests who wanted things done quicker and cheaper. A side note here, regarding the Sinta Larga Indians, who we never actually meet in our story, well, over the years they would be pressured by prospectors and adventurers and be forced to fight to survive. In 1960, rubber prospectors killed 3,500 members of the tribe. At one point they flew over a village and tossed dynamite on the people. It was brutal and vicious. Today only about 1,500 Sinta Larga remain. Anyhow, regarding Rondon, his legacy is that of one of Brasilia's great heroes. There was a bunch of stuff named after him such as airports, universities, towns, even animals. Plus, there are thousands of streets and schools and so forth. To demonstrate how important the guy is, in 1956, the Brazilian government named an entire western province Rondonia to honor the man. Not bad for a poor orphan from the Amazon frontier. Again, if you are interested in Rondon, I encourage you to find out more about him on your own. I didn't read any biographies on the guy, but there are a lot of articles online if you do some searching. 
And so that brings us to the final character in our tale, President Theodore Roosevelt. Well, Roosevelt would never really recover from the ordeal of the journey down the river of doubt. His stamina was never the same, and he would be hospitalized on more than one occasion due to the lingering effects of his injuries and illness. But those health issues didn't stop Roosevelt from trying to stay relevant. Always a proponent of American involvement in World War I, when the United States entered the war, he wanted to raise a volunteer army to go and fight, just like he had done in the Spanish-American War. Congress would even give him the authority to raise four divisions, similar to Roosevelt's Rough Riders. President Woodrow Wilson, however, would have none of that. Roosevelt, who was back with the Republicans, was the party's most prominent member, and Wilson was not going to let a potential presidential candidate run off and become a war hero again. Wilson would put the handling of military affairs strictly with the federal government. Thus, Roosevelt was denied another chance to go to the front, something he bitterly resented Wilson for doing. Anyhow, Roosevelt would decline the opportunity to run for governor of New York in 1918, but that did not mean he was really not a bid for president in 1920. However, things would conspire against Roosevelt. His health deteriorated in 1918, and he was hospitalized for seven weeks at one point. And then, in July, Roosevelt would suffer a terrible tragedy when his youngest son, Quentin, a pilot in the United States military, was shot down and killed. This crushed Roosevelt. He had always imagined himself dying in battle, in a glorious fashion, of course, like a modern-day Davy Crockett. But he had never wanted that fate for his own children, especially one so young. Some say that Quentin's death and Roosevelt's flagging health sapped the former president of his will to go on. Despite all of this, Roosevelt was seen as the favorite to win the presidential nomination for the Republican Party in 1920, but it would not come to pass. On January 5, 1919, Roosevelt began to have breathing problems. The next day, in the morning hours, he would die, the result of a blood clot that had detached from a vein and gone to his lungs. Theodore Roosevelt was 60 years old. I am not going to go into the life and legacy of Roosevelt, as that is what books are for. But the man's shadow is enormous. To be honest, Roosevelt is one of those guys that is hard not to like. No, he is not perfect. No one is. But he was a larger-than-life character, a guy who walked the walk and talked the talk. It makes him fun to travel with. That said, I'll wrap up with a few comments. First, I want to mention that in 2021, HBO released a four-part miniseries about the River of Doubt expedition. It is called The American Guest. The cast was fine, but I'll be honest, it was just okay. Kind of dull. They moved around events, combined characters, things like that. But they also made stuff up, probably thinking they needed to make things more dramatic. One issue I had was that Aidan Quinn, who played Roosevelt, was kind of boring. He just didn't capture the magnetism of Roosevelt, which is so critical to the story. Anyhow, as I said, it's not bad. Give it a watch if you are so inclined. Second, I just want to add that I really love this story. I didn't know much about it until I read Candace Millard's book on the expedition, and it was just a wonderful revelation. It is one of the fun things about doing this show, all the great stories and people you get to meet, some of whom you've never heard of before. One of those people, as I noted earlier, is Candido Rondon. He is a truly unique and fascinating person, and I'm amazed I knew nothing about the man. And that brings me to my third and final comment, and that is about Candace Millard and her book, The River of Doubt, Theodore Roosevelt's Darkest Journey. This is just an awesome book. I've read it several times now, and it's so entertaining, and I can't stress how much stuff I did not include in my version of the events. So big kudos to Candace Millard for the book. If you want to know more about the story, read her book. And so that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed our series on Teddy Roosevelt and the River of Doubt. Thank you for listening. Take care, and I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Check out airwavemedia.com to find other great history podcasts such as Legends of the Old West and The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast.